Well, good morning. This is the day the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Hey, it's just so good to have you here this morning as they are coming into the sanctuary. Praise the Lord. And for those of you that are watching us on live stream, welcome as well. So it is uh, good to have you. For those that are here, uh, there are there's an announcement sheet on your um, seat. Uh, several announcements that are there. I'll just highlight them. One, um, we are having Believer's Baptism here at our church on Sunday, November 20th. Um, Pastor Tim had a class last week, so if you went through that class, uh, Believer's Baptism, I would encourage you to invite friends. I would encourage you to invite family members to the service. It's probably one of my favorite services um, as a pastoral staff. I know it's one of our favorite services. Um, we love uh, being able to preach. We love being able to take uh, communion with you. But there is something about that baptism service that is pretty, it's so exciting. Uh, we get to hear uh, the testimonies of faith, how God drew people to faith and how God has been transforming their lives. So you get to hear those testimonies and then you'll be able to watch somebody go into the waters of baptism. So. Uh, we're looking forward to that. That's going to be on Sunday, November the 20th. A grief Share uh, began back in September, but they are going to have their special Grief Share class. It's called Surviving the Holidays. Um, I've been part of that class several times. It's a great uh, ministry and great opportunity. Uh, holidays are wonderful times for many of us, but uh, for those that have lost family members and friends, it could be a time of great grief. It's one of those things that they just don't even want to deal with at times. Um, so Surviving those holidays, it's going to be on uh, November the 15th at 7 p.m. You could check with uh, Fran or Laura for that. Uh, youth activities uh, Wednesday nights at Pastor Tim. Uh, the missionary for our week is uh, the Priolas. They are with World Venture, so we would encourage you to pray for them. If you go to the website, you can get some more information about them as well. I'll encourage you with Operation Christmas Child. Rita is taking care of that. Uh, the boxes are going to be due also on November the 20th. Uh, so please make sure you do that. And really big, um, tomorrow begins our practice for the children's choir. Please see Christina or Sandy for that. They will begin tomorrow night, uh, the 7th at 6.15. Uh, this Friday, we are going to be celebrating Veterans Day, and there are many of us that know family members or friends that have served in the military. It is a time to be able to um, honor them. Habitat for Humanity will be doing a breakfast on Friday, and that will be between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. Please see Fran. Fran, you want to just stand up or there, you know... Fran is there. She's waving her hand right down here. If you don't know Fran, just come and see her, and she will give you some information about that. Wow, a lot of announcements, a lot of great things going on in our church. Let me just read a passage for you as we open our time in prayer and worship service. It's found in John chapter 13. It's the night that Jesus was betrayed. He said this to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, actually, I've had that word, that idea circled in my Bible, just as I have loved you. So a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. So Jesus says that, you know what, you can witness to people with your words, but you are going to witness to people through your life, and you're going to witness to people through how you treat other people. Do you love them? Help us to do that well today. Would you pray with me? So Father, thank you for this the blessed opportunity that we have to serve you. Thank you for the fact that you are a God of amazing grace and kindness and favor. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming here to live for us and to die for us and to rise for us. And amazingly, you're seated in heaven right next to your Father, interceding for us right now. So this morning, as we sing of you, as we pray to you, as we hear your word, Lord, I pray that we would reflect you in all that we do. Thank you for the number of things that are going on in our church, many more than I could actually hit this morning. I thank you for this ministry. Pray that you would continue to work in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What joyful thoughts. What joyful thoughts doth heaven bring Where righteous ones worship thee No sadness, fear, or suffering But joyful cries to the King of kings What sacrifice the Father made To crush the Son for our shame Yet raised him up that glorious day and a holy name. Oh, praise the Lamb for sinners slain, who rode with blood our eternal praise. Let the nations of the earth proclaim. of salvation be the song that we shall sing what deep in wounds what deep in wounds has saved our souls what blood that washed our sins of old what precious hands and friends of men and brought us to himself again what hope is in our heavenly home where we will bow at our father's throne and walk with him on streets of gold and kiss the christ we long to hold oh praise the lamb for sinners slain who rode with blood our eternal praise let the nations of the earth proclaim hallelujah oh praise the name of jesus our song forever shall be let the anthem of salvation be the song that we shall sing king hallelujah 
Let the anthem of salvation be the song that we shall sing. Oh, praise the name of Jesus, our song forever shall be. Let the anthem of salvation be the song that we shall sing. I raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief. I raise a hallelujah. My weapon is a melody. I raise a
We ask, Lord, that you would just indwell him deeply to be able to pre- or, uh, bring the word that you would have for us this morning. Give us hearts to understand and to learn something new about your gloriousness. Thank you for this time of worship, and we just uh, pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And we're going to allow the uh, children to uh, go ahead out for a junior church. As they go, I'd like to encourage you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Hope you all are a little more alert today. You got an extra hour of sleep. Or maybe it's going to have the opposite effect on you. I guess we'll find out, okay? Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We've been studying through this book that is at at one level very challenging to preach on because the nature of the topics Uh, that are exposed and the way that they're exposed. But at the same time, it is a a, a book of the Bible that causes us to look at the dark side and causes us to to seek the light of Christ for guidance in our lives. So Ecclesiastes is a bit of an unfiltered journal. Uh, It contains things that you probably don't want anybody else to see. I think uh, I remember when my sister was younger, she had a diary and there were things in there that I was not supposed to see. <laughs> so in this case, Solomon is writing a bit of an open letter about his personal experience in life. And it is raw. It's the record of a man who went on a search for value, meaning, and purpose apart from God. Okay, so just as we've been saying, on the purely human level, this is what he saw. And some of it, we read it and we're like, wow, that's part of the Bible. And well, the truth is, it is a true picture of my own heart. And that can be for us unsettling, but it is the truth that we need to know. It is uh, the journal of somebody who had incredible mental faculties and incredible resources. And in every area was able to test the limits of the things that we think will make us happy, Solomon had more of each of those things than you and I could ever even imagine. And at the end, he says, I have seen, right? So verse four of chapter four starts by saying, and I saw, or literally I looked around or I have seen. Okay, it's his, he's looking at life. He's, he's looking through the experiences of people around him and he's reflecting on himself and he's reflecting on, on them. And at the end of the day, in each case, he gets to the end of the section and he says something like this, nothing of value here. Apart from God, Solomon continues to come to a conclusion that without a knowledge of God as my personal savior, there is nothing of value here. And in that he he takes us away from hope in temporal things and hopefully causes us out of that brokenness to then begin to seek the things that God wants us to seek. Okay, so in that sense, it is very helpful. This text is going to kind of uh, springboard off of the word better. So if you look at verse six, it says, better 
is one handful with tranquility. Look at verse 9. Two are better than one. And then verse 13, better a poor but wise youth. Okay? So the text is going to spring off of those things. We're going to work through those three pictures. And then we're going to come back to the section on relationships in conclusion. Okay? So would you read through the text with me this morning? Solomon says this. And he says, I saw that all the toil... And all achievements spring from one person's rivalry or envy of another. This too is meaningless. Chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of such enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. Two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Better a poor wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship. Or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless. Nothing here. Father, as we look at your word this morning, we trust that you will open our eyes. To see our tendency towards supreme foolishness. But also to see the supreme value of relationships that we were created for. With you and with each other. Uh, Clear our minds. Convict and challenge our hearts. And change us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus name. And all God's people said. Amen. Okay. So we're going to begin by looking. First at the desire for success. And Solomon is going to draw a a very profound and interesting conclusion in verse 4. He says, I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy or rivalry, envy of another. I see what other people have, I want it, so I begin to work harder so that I can have what other people have. My driver is this desire to have what others already possess. And in a sense, what Solomon is saying is, I see a dog-eat-dog world. I see a world of selfish individualism. And hopefully, us living in an American context, that, that, that rings a bell for us. This selfish individualism, this don't tread on me and I'm going to get the most I can out of life for me. And we tend to slip into that mindset because we live in a land of opportunity, of incredible opportunity. And it can be... A magnet that draws us away from what is true and good into this idea of what Solomon kind of describes here as a a savage 
selfishness that is far too common. So as Solomon looks around and he sees people striving and fighting and clawing to get a little bit more, he finds it to be a broken story of humanity. People are motivated by two things in this text. One is jealousy. Okay, and I think that's at the, probably the weaker of the two words. You're going to use two words to describe human motivation when it comes to possessions. One is jealousy. That is, I just want more than the Joneses. I don't know where Kim Jones is this morning, but Kim, forgive us. Okay? Her name is Kim Jones, okay? She's been being chased her whole life, okay? All right, so there's this desire. I, I don't like it that somebody next to me drives a nicer car lives in a bigger house, right? Has better outcomes in relationship to their paycheck. They have nicer clothes. The truth is this, we're never satisfied. So we see what other people have and we get this desire to have a little bit more purely out of, I don't want them to have a better life than I have. It irritates us. But Solomon uses a word that's actually a little bit stronger in verse one. He says, all achievement and the toil, this, this labor to the point of exhaustion, springs from one person's envy or rivalry towards another. And this word is really interesting. Jealousy is one thing, right? I can, I can look at Tom Cicero here and say, I wish I was as good looking as Tom, okay? Or something like that. Or wish I had his truck, whatever. Pick, pick the thing it is, okay? We, we, we have that. But envy is a more distorted, less admittable sin, isn't it? Envy is, I want more at their expense. Their success eats at me, so I wish them harm. I take delight in their struggles. I can find no joy in their success. I can't be happy for their progress. When I hear they got a promotion, it just, it's unsettling. It brings me no joy. I can't receive the blessing that they're receiving for their benefit. And the bottom line is this idea tends to degrade and corrupt. It contributes to the misery of life, doesn't it? And Solomon is looking at this. He's looking at just life around him. And he sees this constant struggle, this constant grappling, this constant striving to get just a little more. But Solomon knows from his position in life, having everything, he knows that there's nothing here. And so people tended to admire the successful, and that's what we tend to do. We look at what they have and we think, wouldn't it be nice if, you can fill in the blank. Okay, there's this jealousy first, but then there's this envy that leads to this deep brokenness in humanity. I want to be clear about this by saying this though. The desire to succeed is not the problem. My motivation is the problem, okay? And it's very important that we realize we, we live in a world where you can pursue and you can succeed. That succeeding in, its, in and of itself is not a problem. But if I want that at the expense of others or if I purely want it solely so that I can be better off than those around me, and that's what Solomon is uncovering. He's saying that becomes a problem because it degrades your soul. It breaks you down. It makes you ugly. It makes you desirous of another's fall. And sometimes you hear news that so-and-so and you think to yourself, you know what, I always wondered about them. And you find justification for your desire to see them broken. 
Well, verse five is interesting. Solomon says, yeah, there are a lot of people that, that, that work hard to get more by gauging themselves by what's around them. But he says in verse five, in contrast to that, some simply check out, right? Fools fold their hands and ruin or consume themselves. They, it, it's from Proverbs, it's the idea of the sluggard. It's the person that decides to stop working live off the system, and they end up slowly degrading themselves because you weren't made to do nothing. You were created by a creative God to live in his image and to find success, to enjoy progress, to have accomplishments. So this, so what happens sometimes is people say, you know what, I agree with Solomon. What a broken, screwed up world we live in. So I'm gonna choose the extreme rather than the balance. And the extreme is, I'm just, I'm just not going to do anything. And the book of Proverbs is very interesting. It says, the, the sluggard puts his hand in the dish. The person that has opted for this, I'm going to live off the system. He puts his hand in the dish, but he is so overcome by his laziness that he can't even bring the food to his mouth. It's a fascinating verse. The sluggard sticks his hand in the bowl, because they didn't have utensils back then. You guys know that, right? Okay, he puts his hand in the bowl, but he can't even nourish himself because that's the degrading effect of checking out. So Solomon hits the two rather heavy extremes, but then in verses six and seven, he comes back to this balance. And this is where Solomon is starting to awaken in this book. It, it stops being purely dark and he starts turning on lights occasionally. Okay, and watch what he says in verse six. Better is one handful with tranquility or quietness than two hands, handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Better a little less with peace than two fists clawing, climbing, and striving. The idea is this, better is less with contentment. And it's interesting that later, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy will pick up this theme. He'll say to Timothy, Timothy, warn the rich not to be obsessed with their possessions, not to seek happiness in it because it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. They make wings and fly. Godliness, he says to Timothy, with contentment is great gain. I think there's a sense in which Paul seems to be clearly reflecting back on the words of Solomon. To, to have a heart for God and to be content with your status, not clawing and striving and punching and fighting. It's better to be there, to work and have peace. And there's implied in this text, I think, a warning for workaholics. We, we tend to have misplaced value systems. We end up chasing the wind. We end up making temporary things ultimate things. Does that make sense? I make the temporary thing my primary pursuit. And when I do that, I've created an idol that will replace God in my life. Here's what happens. My passion for more replaces my passion for God. And when I end up with more, I come to Solomon's conclusion. In truth, there's nothing here. Nothing of value. So Solomon's advice to us is this, work hard and live in quietness and tranquility. Stop striving, stop wanting, start, stop craving, stop envying, stop being jealous. 
and look at the blessings that God has given you. Work hard, but better is one handful with contentment than two handfuls with fighting. Okay, and there's that, so there's that implied warning. My sin makes me selfish. And we forget the very simple directions out of the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 15, 16, it says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Think about that. Better is a, better is a little with a close proximity to God himself than a lot with struggle. And turmoil. Man, do we forget that so fast. Verse 17 of Proverbs 16 says this. Better is a dinner of herbs with love. Than a fattened calf with hatred. Boy, that one's kind of. Let my, I remember the first time I heard that verse. From a professor at college. The guy that I worked with in planning a church in North Carolina. When I was getting married. That's the verse he wrote in our card. Better is a dinner with herbs. And I'm no fan of vegetables, okay? <laughs> Just to be clear. <laughs> uh, and the argument of the text is with me, okay? Because the assumption is, is what? A fattened calf is better, okay? Meaning a good steak or veal cutlet, something like that. It is better than herbs. But Solomon's saying, if you have the fattened calf and turmoil, you will despise your riches, because there's nothing there of lasting value. Okay, so just let, let that settle in. Let that settle in. Better, better is a little, Proverbs 16, 8 says, with righteousness than much with injustice. See, folks, here's what happens. If you slip into the dog-eat-dog -dog mindset, if you look around your neighborhood when they come in with their new car and you're thinking to yourself, how dare they? It will corrupt and it will eat at it and it will destroy from the inside out. No one will even know it's happening except the people that are close to you because they will see that it is changing you. It is distorting your values. It is replacing your affections for others with affections for temporal things in which there is nothing here. And so Solomon, I think, he points this out. He sees it and he's lived it. And he says, then please don't fall into this broken mindset because it will destroy your life and your soul. So the first thought is Solomon sees a desire for success that is often driven by competition. That competitive mindset tends to degrade and corrupt. Okay, the second observation is in verses seven and eight. He he says, again, I saw something meaningless under sun. So I, I was looking at this. People fighting and striving to get a little more. He said, then, then this caught my attention. I saw in verse 8, a man all alone. And that literally means one with no one beside him. Okay, a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. And the picture that becomes very clear immediately is this guy in his pursuit of success has isolated himself from the relationships that are so crucial to our lives and our happiness. He's lost all of that. He is a man who is wealthy because in verse eight it says his eyes were not content with his wealth. So this guy has kind of gotten it together. He's got the nice stuff. He's got a, a nice pile of accomplishments. He's got beautiful collections. 
But he is all by himself. He has no son or brother. The idea of that simply is this. There are no family members left. And it really is, isn't it? A pathetic image. And, and that's what Solomon's trying to paint for you. I saw a man with no one beside him. He's just starkly standing there with his piles of accomplishments. But no one to enjoy it with. And Solomon makes two observations about him. It's in second half of verse eight. He says, there was no end to his toil and his eyes were not content with his wealth. Meaning the pile of things was not big enough. It, it wasn't doing the job. And so Solomon makes two observations. This guy never stops working, but he also never finds success. Here's what I find interesting. I just, this is the kind of text I read it and, and your mind kind of just springboards off into things. He is a man who is rich, which means what? He has neighbors who admire him, right? Because he's successful. And we tend to admire and talk about people of higher levels of success. Think about your conversations. It's what we tend to do. It's what athletes do. It's what financiers do. It's what business people do. We tend to admire people that are there. And Solomon points out that this guy never stops working and he's never happy. He never finds what he was longing for. Admired, but truly lacking and, un and not content with the results. His eyes are not full. And he finally has this, it's kind of a, a wake up moment, right? Second half of verse eight, he says, for whom am I toiling? And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Meaning he's got the stuff, he's got the collections, he's got the things of value. His 401k is just rocketed. Obviously he's not living when we live, but <laughs> he's, he's got it together. But then he gets this wake up moment. He's realizing that this is not what life is all about. And says, who am I working for? If his family was initially his reason, it is no longer his reason. He can't even remember their names. He's so far down in the hole and the light is dimming and getting dark. He feels alone. He feels dissatisfied and broken. Because that is what the temporal will do to us. We weren't created to have a little bit more. We were created for relationships. Folks, the truth is this, the higher you go up the ladder of success, there is less traffic and less joy. And that's what happens to this guy. He's got it all together, he takes a good look at it, but at the end of the day, there is no external motivation. It's all purely selfish individualism driving him to a life that Solomon says, hey bud, I've been there. And when you get to the top, here's what you're gonna find. The ladder was against the wrong building and there's nothing there. I mean, I, I look at this verse and I, to me, this is a pathetic image, a sad image of a guy who got it all together, but he can't quit. He can't slow down. It, success, more is his real reason. And Solomon ends this in an interesting way. He says, this too is meaningless, a miserable business. 
There's nothing here. And if you worked that hard and you lost everything, every solitary relationship in your life, but you got what you wanted, it is more heartbreaking and more miserable than you could ever imagine. I, I'm going to tell you guys something. I think Solomon is doing us a favor by saying what he says here. He, he's calling us to reset, to rethink, to reevaluate, to recalculate. What really matters at the end of the day? I think the simple principle of this is in a song by Three Dog Night. Maybe you remember this song. One is the loneliest number. You can climb and you can scrap and you can get there. But what you will often find is that everybody you were doing it for is gone. Because the pursuit drove them away. It gave you t distance from what you so desperately need, from what you were created for. Folks, we're not repositories for wealth and accolades. That's not what our life is about. It's about people. It's about relationships. And we often are sacrificing the health of our marriages, our relationships with our kids in the desperate pursuit of something that when you get there, Solomon says, hey, wait, wait, I've been there. There's nothing there. There's nothing of value there. And it will leave you feeling so much more empty than you could dare imagine. Success can be lethal to your soul. The problem is not success, however. The problem is seeking satisfaction there. Right? Because you'll find as you go through scripture, many people that God blessed. Solomon is one of them. He's one of the people that God, in an overwhelming way, blessed him. And Solomon works through that issue of being wealthy and wise and all those things. And at the end of the day, he comes to realize it ultimately isn't about that. It's about God himself. It's about finding joy in relationships in this text. Time for loving and serving others helps me to keep in balance. The truth is that the successful are often isolated. And I've watched this a lot of times in my lifetime. I mean, I'm finally over 60. Okay. I know it doesn't appear that way, but it feels that way. Okay. You, you watch it and you watch success isolate. You start to get paranoid. I had one guy uh, 10 years ago took me into a building with 139 jewelry grade, jewelry grade restored vehicles. There were individual cars in that building that were worth $250,000 a piece. And everybody that I knew that knew this guy, paranoid and alone. And I left there feeling like, ugh. I mean, don't get me wrong, okay? I loved what I saw. But at the same time, it was scary. It was scary. And it felt dirty. It didn't satisfy. And I think we need to be careful because you all remember the story in Luke 12. Where a man runs to Jesus and he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide our father's estate. And Jesus looks at him and says, beware 
and be on guard of against every kind of greed because your value is never measured by what you own. See, the assumption of greed, of envy and jealousy is that if I get more, it will produce some level of satisfaction, meaning, purpose and happiness in my life. But Jesus says to his disciples on this day as he looks at this, this man that is craving to get his hands on what is rightfully his. Jesus says, even if you get it, my friend, it will not define who you are. And it will not bring lasting joy and satisfaction into your life. Value is never measured by what you own. But the assumption of greed is that a little more will suffice. And Solomon's like, time out. There's nothing there. I remember, most of you know, I grew up in a family business environment. My uh, family has an Ace Hardware store. Uh, I remember the Ace corporate people coming to the store and observing what was going on and being very happy with the level of success. Uh, my dad and my, my brother now runs a store. Uh, very effective, have done very well. Three years ago, they were the number one store in the country out of, I think there's... 5,000 stores, okay? Here's the game. The game is if you're good at running one, then corporate comes and entices you with what you can have and they never talk about what it'll cost. You understand the difference? What you could have. Like if you can run one store well, you can run a lot of stores well. And imagine where you could be, right? My dad's proverbial response uh, to us on a regular basis was this. How big is big enough? Because as a, as a young person, when I was younger and they came and laid that on the table, I was like, that. Sorry, Doc, I'm imitating you. <laughs> right? My response was, oh my gosh. For a young heart, that was super enticing. For someone who had labored in the business for 30 years, my dad was like, how big is big enough? How much more do you need? I, th I thank God for that example of restraint. When more success was laid out there, many of us think though you should always go for the most. Going for the most is not always the wisest decision. And Solomon is learning that here. And he's warning these people. That even if you get a lot, it won't bring what you're looking for. It, because here's what happens. Here's what you can have, but they never talk about the cost. The psalmist is saying, you better count the price. Because you may get to the top of the ladder and find out that there's nothing of value there. Money provides, yes. But money can never define and satisfy. It can become an idol, the place I go to to find ultimate meaning and security and purpose that ultimately I can only find in loving God and loving others. Okay, so, so, so be warned. Mom and dad, heed this warning. Your kids need you. They don't need a little more. And you will never regret having a System of priorities in relationship to your family that reflects God's design and purpose and desire for you. Never had someone come up to me and say, you know what? My mistake was I spent too much time with my kids. Just haven't heard that yet. So I give you that warning. In the pursuit, be careful. 
Remember that success is a liar. It is a harsh reality, is lonely at the top, collections can't satisfy. And I thought, as, as, I've, as I studied through this text, I thought all week, I, I, have, I have a news app on my, do any of you have apps on your phone that you don't know how they got there? Okay, I got that app. Uh, James, I think you might have referred to it last week. It's the news app, it's got two red things like this. The sadness for me, as I look at that, yesterday, I don't even remember the artist's name. There's a guy that sang with the Backstreet Boys, found and had literally, through drugs, killed himself. What? His younger brother, yeah. So, I want, I'm serious, once a week, you can almost count on it that someone who made it to the top found the top to be unbearable and desolate and lonely and it created paranoia. What I, 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 my wife and I watch some of these uh, competition shows, okay? We won't get specific so you can't judge me, okay? <laughs> but one of the comments is often this. Okay, you can go ahead and sink. The next two minutes could change your life. That's what they always say. And the idea is that if you do well here, you're going to get all of the accolades. You're going to get all of the achievement. You're going to get all the stuff. But they don't tell you what it will cost. Because the assumption is that more will make me happy. And if you get a lot more, you'll be a lot more happy. It is not true. I, 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 I haven't kept a record of it. it. To me, it seems like once a week, somebody of a high level of notoriety has died and the circumstances of the death are undisclosed. That tells you what you need to know. They found the loneliness, as C.S. Lewis said, unbearable. Because that burden of achievement means I have to maintain that. And if I ever fall below the level I'm at now, I am devastated because I'm looking for ultimate meaning in temporal things. And Solomon holds up a big stop sign, a big warning sign. And he says, there's nothing here. Achievement can lead to loneliness, a desperate form of loneliness. The last thought is in verses 13 to 16. It's a fascinating turn. I'm going to skip nine and come back to it in a minute. Solomon says, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning or take advice. The youth may come from prison to kingship where he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth. They got in line and admired the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. So the picture is interesting, right? It is the idea that, that Achievement at the highest level at best yields temporary results. Okay? Achievement at the highest level at best yields temporary results. Okay? And keep in mind, here we are talking about kings. We are talking about people that have made it to the top of the ladder. They're on the top rung. And, and here's the truth. How many of us ever are going to get there? It's a very small group of people, but Solomon points to the extreme so that all of us in pursuit in between are warned. And he's pointing to this, this idea that what you get out of it is at best temporal. So there's a seasoned king who's sitting on the throne. 
He has been on the throne too long, as you know that saying, too long in the saddle. This king has been there too long. He can no longer take advice. He can't heed a warning. He is so full of himself and so confident in his accomplishments that he has become deaf to what he desperately needs to hear. And then in verse 14, it says, it talks about this, or the beginning of 13, I'm sorry. It talks about a poor but wise youth who may have either experienced prison, he may have been someone who was convicted by society of great crimes, or he may have been deep in poverty. In either case, he has overcome the odds, and where is he? He is sitting on the top. So this old king, who can no longer take advice, apparently in this account, is deposed. And then there is this upstart, who gains the affection of everybody, Against all odds, he succeeds in becoming the king. Even though he came from poverty, he didn't come from the right lineage. He didn't have the right moral background. But somehow, he beat the odds and he got to the throne. Verse 15 is a stunning text. It says, I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. He was overwhelmingly popular. He was loved. Verse 16 is a stark warning. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless. Nothing here. So what's the picture? The picture is this guy, he, he, he scratches from the very bottom morally. Right? He scratches from the very bottom in terms of financial status. And he claws his way up and finally he is sitting on the throne. He is at the place of highest human achievements but he finds out that his achievement is costly because even when I against all odds get to the top my achievements are at best short lived fame and accolades give no lasting advantage and this is the futility this is what Solomon is saying I, I was king I saw King Saul in his brokenness who could not take advice. I saw my dad, King David, go through seasons of deep brokenness because the money didn't do it. And here I am. He, he, obviously, he's describing the picture in an extreme, but he's kind of the third guy here. And what's his assessment? His assessment is the top is unstable. Folks, do you understand that it is presidents who have secret service? Because being at the top is lonely and being at the top, there are people that want to knock you off. There's nothing there that ultimately brings satisfaction. The top is unstable and lonely. A politician in general named Oliver Cromwell in the 1600s followed a man named King Charles I and he warned his son and successor Richard as they were going through a day of, of high acknowledgement from the crowds and a lot of cheering, he said to his son, do not trust the cheering mob, for those persons would shout as loudly if you or I were going to be hung. He understood something. And I, look, I'm a Philly sports fan, okay? I know what it is to be passionate and ungodly, okay? Uh, man, if you're doing good, you're the best. And if you are not doing well, you're not average. You stink, okay? 
And it, it's just, it's yin and yang. It's black and white, right? And that's what Solomon is saying. You may get there, but when you get there, everything, all the accolades have a temporary advantage at best. So don't give it ultimate value. Think of the young people in our church. There's a lot of kids in our youth group that are going to be going to college next year. And most parents, and I understand this, I did the same thing. We're talking to our kids about finding something that, that has some level of high achievement, that, that offers benefit, that has a good paycheck. And can I just say, be careful. Be careful that you value the character of your kids more than you value their accomplishments. That is so hard. Because my heart is attracted to success. And a little bit more. And what I praise in my kids. May one day be what ensnares them. Because they so want your approval. Without even knowing it. That they can't live without the success that earns it. Please be careful. And young people as you prepare for college. Be careful. Know that your relationships are the most important thing in life. First with God and then with each other. And if in the context of valuing those things, God brings you success, use it wisely. At one level, fear it. Don't impute to it ultimate value. Realize that it is at best temporary. And I think that's the picture of this text. The point is easy come, easy go. A month ago, a woman named Elizabeth Truss became the Prime Minister of England. I don't know how many of you know this story. She survived 39 days. And her, you know what her plaque will say? Shortest serving Prime Minister in the history of England. I want you to think about it. She got to the top. Made a bad decision in the financial realm through her financial minister. And in 39 days, gone. That's like, whoa. I can get to the top of my country and like that, it can be gone. That's what Solomon's saying. Easy come, easy go. In favor, out of favor. And it happens to the best over time. And all Solomon is really saying is this is just the way it is. So, so what's the antidote? How do, I, how do I resist these tendencies to desire success driven by competition? How do I resist the tendency to want achievement and end up being lonely? How do I avoid getting something that at the end of the day doesn't have lasting value? How do I, how do I adjust? And Solomon in this text in verse 9, I think, gives you the answer. Do not allow the pursuit of success... To forfeit the value of relationships. You know, early on, when we're struggling, we're, we're, we're kind of just trying to get ourselves up off the ground as adults, right? We love our friends. We value them. We can't get enough time with them, talking to them. Like today, it's not being with them. It's texting with them or you know, communicating, right? We just, we can't get enough of that. In those early stages, we know that we need each other. But we get a little further down the road and we begin to forget. And that's what Solomon's warning us. We forget that achievement can lead to loneliness because it is so costly to get there. 
And in, in, in this little section, he, he lays down a few gems that I think are so important and so helpful that warn us there is a better way. In verse 9, he says, two are better than one. He kind of lays down the foundation there, right? To be in the context of community, even if it's small, is better than being one rich man alone. Or being a group in verses 1 to 3 that James talked about last week. With bitter rivalry and jealousy and abuse. So it's interesting in the text that he moves into the realm of community and, and, and helping us to understand its value. We were made for relationships by God. And so Genesis tells us in Genesis 2, it's not good for you to be alone. God didn't create you for isolation. He created you for community. He created you to live life together. And so his assessment at the beginning is two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. And I, I just, in my head, I don't know if this works exactly. One times one is what? One. Two times two is what? I know. You guys don't do math tables anymore. It's modern math, okay? Two times two is four. You end up with an exponential growth in community. I think that's the point. The guy alone is isolated and devastated. But when two are working together, they have a good return for their labor. There is a multiplication and ultimately there is an exponential benefit to living life together. And then Solomon makes his case for this better than proverb that he says at the beginning of verse 9. And it's really, I think, an, an illustration most likely drawn from travel in the ancient world. These are the kinds of struggles. If you were going on a journey, it was much better to go with two people than to try to journey alone for a whole host of reasons. Here he's going to point out three. In verse 10, he says... Two are better than one. They have a good return for the labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the man who falls alone, who will help him up? And the idea of pitying is a woe. It's almost a bit of a, of a dark cloud upon that person. This is in the ancient world. When you traveled, there were not street lights, halogen lights, LED lights. It didn't exist. To travel at night in the dark was a risk. And it was always wiser to travel with two people. Most of you know, if you're a hiker and you're going out a hike on a hike on your own, you are typically warned, tell someone where you're going and when you'll return. Why? Because hiking on your own is dangerous. And you need to mitigate the risk of that journey by letting someone know starting point, ending point, starting time, ending time. Okay, you mitigate the risk. You involve someone else in that journey, even if they're not right with you. But here... It's most certainly about somebody who's traveling. And he's saying, if there are two of you, you, you mitigate the, the danger. You are less vulnerable and there is mutual encouragement. Verse 11. Also, so another illustration. If two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Here's an interesting thing about body heat. Okay. We have all these blankets and comforters and sometimes I might want to snuggle up to my wife and I'm getting ready to go to sleep. But I'm serious, like in a couple minutes, I'm like, okay, we need distance. <laughs> You've probably all been there, okay? Maybe some of you are more righteous than I. 
Body heat is, I want you to hear this word, it is reciprocal. You can freeze to death alone. What he's talking about here is not the romance of marriage. He's not talking about marital intimacy. He's talking about a survival skill called spooning. Okay, where you, if, if you're in a dangerous situation, I have a friend, he's a hunter, got stuck in a snowstorm and he and the other guy had to, there's nothing sexual about it. They had to get close together to survive. It's a survival mechanism. If you're alone, you can freeze to death. And your chances of survival go up exponentially if there's another person. That relationship is reciprocal. Okay? And, and, and so it's, it's important that you, you th if you're alone, you're vulnerable. If you're traveling by yourself at night and you snuggle up in a blanket, you're not going to get warmer by yourself. But if there's someone in that blanket with you, there is a mutual benefit and you are less vulnerable. Verse 12 Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. I have a couple people in my life that I think have my back. And what happens when someone is at your back? What it means is your field of vision goes from 180 to 360. Okay? I think that's very simply. If you're attacked and there's two of you, you're less vulnerable. Okay? I've been in cities by myself. And I've been in city circumstances where I felt uncomfortable alone. Okay? Two were better than one. Right? When I was building my house, I had one stupid night when I took on a task that I did by myself. And I ended up hanging from the ceiling about 20-some feet above the ground with the, my foot hooked in a stepladder, trying to get it back on the boards on the scaffolding before the steps were put in my place, both second floor and basement steps. I'm looking down. I'm trying to get this ladder Two are better than one. <laughs> Just saying, okay? So my question to you this morning is who's got your back? Verse 12 says, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. It's, it's not what it's often used to portray in weddings, even though the truth is present. Okay, it's just simple math. It's simple physics. That if you have three single strands, they are vulnerable. If you weave them together, there is greater strength. And that's what Solomon is pointing out here. Okay, that there is, in the context of community, in the context of togetherness, there is greater strength. The points are simple. Alone is not good. God's solution to isolation was marriage, was family. Jesus, when he came on earth, did not choose one follower. He chose 12. And when he sent them out, he sent them out two by two. Why? Because he knew that alone we would be vulnerable. And so it's crucial that we understand God created you for community. God put kids in a family setting, not in a government setting, but in a family setting where you can care for them and meet their needs. And it's better than them being alone. So alone is never good. And God's solution to aloneness is community. It's not saying, however, and I want to make sure this is clear. I am not saying that relationships are easy. Okay, can you all say amen to that? Amen. Right? Relating is not easy. Sometimes relating has been so painful that we choose isolation. Isolation will never be better than community, even though you choose it for a reason that feels justifiable. Okay, I watch this happen with people. They go through a struggle in church. So what they decide is, I'm better without God's plan. 
I'm better alone. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, the hand cannot say to the eye, I don't need you. Hands don't do well when your eyes are closed. Okay, your hands function much better when they have guidance from another part of your body. And when you got saved, God brought you into community. He brought you into a family because he never intended for you to seek seed alone because that success will always lead to pride and rivalry. He brought you into something more beautiful through the selfless sacrifice of the son. Jesus Christ died to make you part of what he is building and that is his church. And here's what he says to you. The gates of hell will never prevail against that. And what is that? That is a community that God is building for mutual edification to live off of one another, to benefit from one another, to have each other's back, to warm each other in times of need. Please do not allow the pursuit of temporal things to steal the supreme value of your relationships. You were created for community, not for autonomy. And I remember James Dobson years ago talking about family, and I remember him I'm not saying I agree with everything James Dobson says, okay? But was, he made a fascinating observation. He talked about what lasts. At the end of the day, out of your life, what's going to be there in the future? You know what the answer is? Jesus Christ. And your brothers and sisters in Christ. Forever. Right? That's the beauty of John 14. That's the beauty of 1 Thessalonians 4. That we will be joined together. That those relationships that you invest in today will affect you for the rest of your life and beyond. We, res we resist degrading motives, the loneliness, and the futility of life by embracing the value of vital relationships. First with Christ, because here's the bottom line. The greatest treasure in life is Jesus Christ. He is the man that went in the field and he hit a box and he opened the box and he saw that it was the pearl of all pearls. He buries the box and he goes and he sells everything he has so that he can have that pearl. That's the first most important relationship in your life. That's the relationship that will get you out of the deep brokenness of your life bent on temporal things. Is to realize that if I have Christ, Jesus said this, I have come that you may have life. And that you may have it what? More abundantly. Folks, do you realize that Jesus Christ does not come into your life to restrict you, to keep you from fun things? He comes into your life to give you the best things. I just tend to believe lies about what will make me happy. Jesus comes to be what does make me happy or who does make me happy. So if you've never trusted Christ, I'll say this to you. Jesus Christ came to save you from your isolation and from your shame that keeps you alone. So that he can bring you first into a relationship with himself and with brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not allow temporal pursuits to replace these relationships that have eternal value. Companionship brings hope when you're vulnerable. And when I believe that, it's going to change my life. So my, my simple request or pleading to you this morning is if you've never trusted Christ, to say, oh man, 
That text hits the nail on the head of my life. I am alone. I, I may have someone sitting beside me, but I have no one beside me. My sin is keeping me away. It is making me feel shame. It is driving me into isolation. But God brought you here today because he wants to change your life. He came that you might have life and have it abundantly. It's not found in achievement. It's found in what Christ has done for you on the cross. And if you've never trusted him, I would, I would beg of you today to cry out to God and say, God, I sit here a sinner beside someone and alone. I believe that your son died on the cross to bear the weight of my shame, to take away my isolation and to bring me into a new family. And today I want to be cleansed by the blood of Christ that we sang about so beautifully earlier. The blood applied cleanses you from sin and makes you part of God's family. Have you trusted him? Have you believed? Lord, we struggle in this area and we confess that freely. We struggle with an inordinate desire for temporal things. And so we fight and we claw, forgive us. Through the cross, make us kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other as you have forgiven us. And Lord, as you work those beauties of forgiveness and reconciliation that James has been going over in his Sunday school class, as you work that together, the value of vital relationships rises. And we see the weakness of temporal things to satisfy. Help us to come hard after you. And as someone here this morning, Lord, has never trusted Christ, I pray that today they would see that the treasures of this world will never satisfy. So I turn and I cling to Christ. Bless your word to our hearts for the glory of Jesus, our Savior, we pray in his name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together. So I claim to cry.
more than I can do. It's more than I can do to keep my hold on you. But all my hope and peace is that you cling to me. It's more than I can do to keep my hold. is gain for those who know your love all the treasures of this world will never satisfy you alone are endless joy and so I claim to cry sing it's more than I can do it's more than I can do to keep my hold on you, but all my hope and peace is that you cling to me. It's more than is gain for those who know your love all the treasures of this world will never satisfy you alone are endless joy and so I claim to cry sing that again alone our endless joy and so I claim to cry hello chapel um, we're gonna go back a little bit in history here for some lessons. I know we have people been here a long time. We've had people that have not been here very long. Um, but I want to take us back to show God's goodness. 24 years ago, um, when we, when Laura and I started attending here, um, worship was um, John Baker on an acoustic guitar. And John was wonderful, but we, we just had such an, a desire to see a worship team grow. It has grown through the years, and we're so blessed. It is so rewarding to um, see the growth 
um, musically, spiritually, young people. Um, but the reason I'm here today, I want to talk to you this morning before we, before we depart, is to let you know that uh, Carmelo, who has been our worship leader for 14 years, um, has decided that he needs to spend more time with his family. Um, he's still going to be here. He may still be up here playing and doing things, but as far as being the uh, designated leader, um, he is going to be stepping down. At, by the end of January, it'll be, be that time. So just so you don't hear it through the rumor mill or anything like that, there's nothing nothing wrong with this. This decision is his, and he's got beautiful kids he wants to spend more time with. So all good. The reason I'm, I'm going to address you today is we're asking if anyone out there, if you know of someone who might be unknown to the, to the leadership team who could possibly um, fit for that position, um, we are um, actively looking for anyone that, that could help us out in that area. So be in prayer for that. Okay, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom of Solomon, Lord, that uh, helps us get our focus on what's important. And uh, Lord, we just pray through your Holy Spirit that you would remind us of the, the words that, that uh, came to us today, Lord. Um, everything is just gone, Lord, except for you and our relationship with you. And, and Lord, we just pray that you would help everyone in this room to um, apply that to their hearts and to their lives and to be changed in the way they move forward, we pray. Bless us as we go from this place. Pray for your protection over us. In thy name we pray. Amen. Amen.